Peace and blessings be upon you. Welcome to the Ta'lif Podcast, a space where we aim to provide content and connect our spiritual hearts with community, love, service, and prophetic wisdom. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Innalhamdulillahi na'hamaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nasta'gfiruhu wa nasta'hdi'u وَنَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنْ شُرُورِ أَنْفُسِنَا وَمِنْ سَيِّئَاتِ أَعْمَالِنَا فَمَنْ يَهْدِهِ اللَّهُ فَلَا مُضِلَّ لَهُ وَمَنْ يُضْلِلْ فَلَا هَادِيَ لَهُ وَأَشْهَدُ أَنْ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهُ وَحْدَهُ لَا شَرِيكَ لَهُ وَأَشْهَدُ أَنَّ مُحَمَّدًا عَبْدُهُ وَرَسُولُهُ ثُمَّ أَمَّا بَعْدُ أَسْلَمُ عَلَيْكُمْ peace welcome the first place that i traveled to outside of the united states was yemen Right. Someone told me that the Yemeni dialect of Arabic was closest to classical Arabic. So I knew that I wanted to live in Yemen and I wanted to learn in Yemen. And when I got there, I was in a region referred to as Hadramaut, right? Literally, death has come, right? It was very hot, very barren. And the people there had embodied knowledge very, very deeply so that they could teach formal classes giving you verse and chapter and giving you titles of books and authors or they could teach in a very informal very practical way where the class would almost appear a conversation between the students and the instructor just you know and i remember being in a class and it was more of that kind of conversational style more of that very easy going very practical very informal style and i remember thinking to myself i traveled all the way from the united states just to have a conversation i want you to give me verses give me books give me page numbers give me something more structured more formal and the teacher was telling a story and maybe by some gesture in my face he could tell that i didn't appreciate his storytelling you know maybe and it was slight he was telling a story and maybe i did something like you know something i don't know i did something and he said to me obeyed i can tell you don't like my stories and i did what any of you would do i lied i love your stories what are you talking about I love when you tell stories. He said, "No you don't." Because whenever I'm quoting a book, whenever I'm teaching uh you know, you know, a formal aspect of this or that discipline, you're very attentive and you're leaning in like this. But whenever I start telling you a story or something from my own experience, you're kind of leaning back. And that leaning back suggests you're not as engaged. He said, "I want you to know something." If I tell you something from a book you could go for yourself find the book find the reference and you can read it but if I tell you something from my own experience I'm sharing something with you that you can only get from me and if you don't take advantage of what I'm sharing with you in that moment you will never have an opportunity to take advantage of it again because it's not printed in a book the kinds of questions that imam ghazali who was a great scholar of islam 
is addressing for his student in these, you know, this series of missives, this series of letters, it's of that very informal, but deep and precious nature. So he begins, he said, Shukiya, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Anna Shibli, Rahimahullah, Khadama Arba'a Mi'ati Ustadhin, Wa Qala Qara'atu Arba'ata Alafi Hadithin, Thum Akhtarutu Minha Hadithan Wahidan, Alimtu, Amiltu, Bi. It is said that Shibli, who was a great scholar of Islam, served 400 masters of the Islamic sciences. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed or, or you know, one of the things that I really dislike in our community is when people make scholarship the source of these cults of personality. Like, are you this scholar student or are you her student? Are you his student? He had 400 separate teachers, right? Knowledge is taken from its sources. If you have the tools of learning, you can sit and benefit from almost anybody. Even someone that does not have a formal teaching license. It could be your elder brother. It could be your grandmother. It could be your grandfather. It could be your neighbor. It could be someone who doesn't even practice Islam. We should be people that are attentive to the world around us, and we should be people moved by a deep spiritual curiosity of what the people around us have been given. It says Shibli had 400 separate teachers. I'm thinking, man, 400 teachers? And then he mentioned that this same man, Shibli, he said, I studied. 4,000 hadith, then selected from them a single hadith to act upon. As soon as you hear that, you know that you're hearing like what's called khulasa in the Arabic language. Like think about somebody collecting thousands of anything. When you ask that person, of the thousands of these objects that you've collected, which one is the most precious to you? You know you're going to get something good, right? Think about any connoisseur, any aficionado of anything. Think about anybody you know who loves a great multitude of a particular thing. And then think about what it would be like to ask them of all of these, right? Think about like a movie buff that has seen thousands of movies. Which is your favorite? They're probably going to have a very deep reason that this is my favorite movie. Or think about somebody who collects stamps or collects coins. What am I talking about? Nobody has habit, nobody does stuff like that anymore, right? Anyone who collects anything, if you ask them, which of these is most precious to you? You're going to get something good. So Shibley has 400 teachers, and from those 400 teachers, he studied 4,000 ahadith of the Prophet and he said, I selected just one of them. And I said, if I can master just this statement of the Prophet I will be successful. 
What was that statement? He says, And I left everything besides it. And I found and I refrained from the rest of them because after contemplating, I found that my deliverance and my salvation were found in this one single statement of the Prophet He said, furthermore, the knowledge of the ancients and the men and women of latter days in its entirety was contained in this single hadith. All of you are like, man, what is this hadith? <laughs> this is called tashweed, right? He's, you know, if somebody builds a statement like that, you're like, man, what is he about to say? You know, this is what a lengthy introduction to anything does. It is the best. It is the choices. It is the most precious. It is the most valuable. It is the, man, what is it? Right? He said, to be. So I've contented myself with this statement. It's coming. It's coming. That the Prophet, peace be upon him, said to some of his companions, he said, that statement is, work for your worldly life, commensurate with your stay in this life. And work for your hereafter, commensurate with your permanence therein. Work for Allah, commensurate with your need for him and work for the fire meaning hell perdition punishment commensurate with your ability to endure it and this is the statement the first thing he said work for this life according to how long you plan on residing in this life now this statement can be interpreted in many ways Let's first look at the positives. We should be working to be self-sufficient, independent people. We should endeavor not to be a burden to anyone, to take care of ourselves. And the blessed amongst us will even aspire to take care of other people. There's an authentic hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. I love this hadith. Right, because it, it conditions some of our um, exaggerated, incorrectly exaggerated spiritual ambition. There was a man sitting in the, in the mosque and he would pray and he would remain sitting in the mosque. He never left the mosque. And the prophet, peace be upon him, said, Ya Fulan, what do you do for a living? 
I only see you pray and you sit in the mosque. And he said, no, no, my brother, my brother has a business. He works and I pray for the business. This is the arrangement that we have, <laughs> right? He works for the success of the business and I sit praying for the success of the business. And the prophet said, what? Your brother is better than you. Your brother is better than you. Think about that. His brother is out there earning money, braving the world, dealing with the marketplace, and all of the trial that comes along with the marketplace, right? And his brother sitting in the mosque, almost in a monastic state, just praying. Your brother is better than you, right? So working for this, for dunya, is not something that we scorn or reject. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he said in an authentic hadith, Talabu kasbil halali faridatun ba'dil farida of ba'dil farida that seeking a lawful income is the obligation after your religious obligations. Right, So we should not look at a person working and earning and supporting their family and contributing to the world as like, what a waste of time, right? You're, you're defending people in courts of law, what a waste of time, right? You're a grocer and you see to it that people can access healthy food and produce, what a waste of time. No, no, this is not a waste of time. This is a righteous use of your time, right? One of the things that, you know, separates the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam from Christ, Alayhi Salam, peace be upon Christ and peace be upon the Prophet Muhammad is that the Prophet did not teach a complete divorce of the world. He taught what? Engaging the world purposefully, but not seeking permanence in the world. But we use the world to support ourselves, to support our families, to serve other people. This is who we are. So he said, Work for the life of this world in accordance with how long you plan on remaining in this world. Now let's go to some of the negatives. But in doing that, you cannot work for this world like you are going to be here forever. Because one of two things will certainly happen. Either a dunya tedheb mink, or enter tedheb minha. It will leave you or you will eat it. There's an authentic hadith of the Prophet I love it. He says, take advantage of five things before five other things. Take advantage of five before five. The first thing, take advantage of your wealth before your poverty. Take advantage of your health before your sickness or your infirmity. Take advantage of your free time before your preoccupation. Take advantage of your youth 
before your old age. Take advantage of your life before your death. One person said, and this was one of my favorite interpretations of this hadith. He said, what does this hadith tell you? That every state that we enjoy in the life of this world is subject to change. If you're healthy, that good health will not be permanent, either through disease or old age. If you're wealthy, that wealth will not be permanent. Either you will actually experience poverty or you will experience the loss of your ability to enjoy your wealth. What does it mean if you have millions in the bank, but you're old, you know, it's very difficult for you to get around, you know, I mean, there's no jet skiing at that point, right? There's no, there's no hang gliding at that point, right? You're not going to the track to raise cars at that point. You can barely get up and down your stairs, right? If you have free time, you will eventually be preoccupied with something. And if you're living, you will eventually die, right? You cannot seek permanence in this world. In fact, many of the scholars, they say the biggest difference between the pleasures of this world and the pleasures of the next is permanence. See, everything we have in this life is fleeting. No matter how much you enjoy it, it cannot be permanent. In fact, even your enjoyment of it is fleeting, right? The first day you get that new thing is very exciting. After a couple months, it's just a car. It's like, you know, it's nice. I enjoy it. Right? But you're not as what? Excited, enthusiastic as you were. They say in Jannah, Everything you have, your appreciation of it is renewed with every moment. Every moment you experience it, it's like the first moment. All of that anticipation, all of that enjoyment, all of that pleasure is there every time. That's not the state of our enjoyment in this world. It gets fleeting and more fleeting and fleeting and more fleeting with every moment. So you cannot seek permanence in this world. And some of us, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, everything in this world is perishing. Everyone and everything in this world is subject to time, is subject to aging. You can't seek permanence here. If you do, you will only wind up very frustrated. So you can't turn uh, this world into the hereafter. This is not the abode of permanence. It just, it just cannot be that. God says, Every soul shall taste death. And many people have experienced great disappointment working for this world as if they were going to stay here forever only to learn that what? You have to leave this. And you've invested nothing in where you're going and where you're going to be permanently. You've invested nothing there. You know, on Saturday, I'm telling you this because I want all of you to make dua. On Saturday, I'm going to take my eldest daughter to New York City, 
And from New York City, she will fly to Ribat, to Morocco. And she will be in Morocco for an entire month for an Arabic intensive, right? I really want her to, you know, you know, begin learning Arabic. And before we leave, I'm going to take some US dollars. I'm going to go to a currency exchange and I'm going to convert them to Moroccan dirhams because the US dollars will be of no service to her where she's going. And I was thinking about that and I said, you know, that's really a lot like the money that we have in the life of this world. As long as it remains in our coffers, it is of no benefit to us where we're going. As long as we're spending it on our enjoyment, our homes, our cars, our clothes, our travel, our furniture, this, that, it is of no benefit to us where we're going. But if we give it for God's sake, it's like we're converting it to the currency of akhirah. Now it can benefit you where you're traveling to, right? So the next thing he says, And work for your akhirah according to or commensurate with the length of time that you will reside there. And of course, that's eternity. You know, eternity is a very difficult concept for human beings to wrap our minds around because we're temporal beings. What does eternity really mean to me? You know, to me, it's like Andre 3000, you know, forever, forever, ever, forever, ever. That's all that, you know, it's like, you know, what does forever mean to a woman or a man that is trapped in his or her temporality? It's like forever. One thing that I try to, this, this, this is a visual for me. Maybe you'll find some benefit in this. I don't know. I go out to like Lake Michigan. I dip my finger in the water and then I look at the water on my finger and I think this is my life. And then I look at water as far as my eye can see. And I think that is eternity. So like subhanAllah, this is my life. And this is the reason why even the realization of eternity will make your life seem like just an eye blink, right? One of those verses in the Quran that should be chilling for us is when Allah Ta'ala asks us, how long were you alive in the life of the world? You will say what? Yawman aw ba'da yawm, like a day or part of a day. Even if you lived 100 years, even if you lived 950 years, it's, it's going to seem just like that. Why does it seem like that? Because now you're looking at eternity. It's just, it was just an eye blink. You know, one of the Salaf, he said, you know, life is really just an eye blink. Why not make it an eye blink of obedience? It really is an eye blink. And I know these sound like urban legends and barbershop tales, but when I was younger, I would hear my elders telling me, you know, as you get older, life goes faster. Now I'm experiencing it. It seems like summer, summer again, subhanAllah. You know, my wife was laying out to me 
the children's uh, summer schedule. They're going to be here, and then they're going to do tennis camp, and then they're going to do this, and then they'll be back in school, like August 22nd. That's right around the corner. And they're still in school right now. It's right, you know, not to scare you, but the Prophet وسلم, said one of the signs of the end of time is zaman. The days seem quicker. The days seem closer. That you pray Juma, it's like you blink, we're praying Juma again. You experience a winter, you look up, it's snowing again. What? It's quicker and quicker, quicker and quicker. Your life is it's just an eye blink. But your akhirah, it is forever. The place that we're going after this, this will be the abode of our permanent residence. Now, all of us, we have to ask ourselves, what do you want there? What do you want there? You know, mashallah, I travel often, more than I should, which is probably why my wife is upset with me a lot of the time. But I travel often, a lot. I've been to a lot of places and I've stayed in a lot of hotel rooms. What would one of you say? If you saw me in a hotel room, I came into the room and I said, you know, the art in this room, it just doesn't work for me. And I went out and without talking to anybody at the hotel, I just replaced the picture over the bed. I just went with my own money. I actually love uh, the art of Kerry James Marshall. I love Kerry James Marshall, I love his work. I went out, I spent $55,000 from first dibs or something like that, bought a Kerry James Marshall, put it over the bed. Then I sat down on the bed and I said, you know, this bed just isn't comfortable enough for me. And I went out, went to a mattress firm or something like that, spent 5,000 on a new mattress. And then I came and said, no, the, the furniture here, it's just kind of drab. It's just, it just seems like basic hotel furniture. So I go downtown, I'm buying furniture and I'm bringing it up to the hotel room. And then in the morning, I check out of that hotel room, leave all of that stuff, go to my own house that is dilapidated and falling apart. What would one of you think about me? No, this isn't a rhetorical question. He's out of his mind. He's out of his mind. But we do exactly this when it comes to what we invest in our dunya compared to what we invest in our real homes. We beautify. We put great intentionality into how it looks, how it feels, how it tastes. We will go miles and miles just to source a particular coffee. We will scour internet pages just to find a particular kind of rug. We will look at cars for hours just to find one that has the right spec. And none of this stuff can we take with us. But when it comes to our deeds that we're taking with us that will determine our place in the life to come, you know, any old thing will do as long as it's a prayer. You know, Ibn al-Ta'illah, one of my favorite scholars, he said, you know, there's a great lesson in connoisseurship. He said, look at a connoisseur of anything. 
They can tell you the difference between what? The mediocre, the superb, and the subpar. But when you look at how we relate to our deeds, there's no connoisseurship. We don't know the difference between, you know, a superb prayer, a superb Ramadan, a mediocre prayer, a mediocre Ramadan, a subpar prayer, a subpar Ramadan. Hey, I prayed. It's cool. But my coffee. If it doesn't have a Q rating of 96, I just can't drink this. You expect me to drink Starbucks? How dare you? You bring me coffee in a paper cup? I only drink out of the finest porcelain. Are you kidding me? You want me to drive what? I, could, I, I wouldn't be seen in that thing. And we're taking none of this with us. But our real homes, Darul Akhirah, Darul Khulud, where we will remain forever. Uh, you know, whatever. It's cool. Ah, whatever. Then he said, Wa'amal lillahi bi qadri hajatika ilayhi. And work for God in accordance with your need of God. La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. You know, istighnah, thinking that you are self-sufficient. I think this is the real spiritual illness of our time. I really think that. You know, um, uh, Alistair McGrath, who is a theologian at Cambridge or Oxford, he began his academic career as an atheist. And he was a zoologist or a biologist. And he had this religious awakening and he became a Christian. And he wrote a book called The Spark of Atheism, saying like in the modern world, atheism is something that sparkles, but will soon go out. And he was responding to this critique of Freud that Belief in God is just this human desire to uh, have this kind of paternal entity that is caring for the human and looking out for the human, but it doesn't correspond to any reality. And McGrath said insightfully, then atheism must be regarded as this feeble human desire to feel autonomous when everything about who we are and what we are screams at us, you are contingent. You can guarantee nothing for yourself. If COVID taught us anything, it certainly taught us that. There was a microscopic bacteria that brought the world to a screeching halt. After that, how can anyone think, I'm self-sufficient, I can do, you know, I'm not in need of God. 
I don't need, in fact, I'm not in need of anything. La ilaha illallah. God can make the air unbreathable. God can make the water unpotable, undrinkable. God can make our situation very unstable, very insecure. You know, every person that's living in a war-torn country, experiencing the instability of war, I always think a day before the war broke out, they were probably very comfortable thinking about what they were going to do for the remainder of that week. You know, man, I wonder, man, you, you want to go catch a movie? I hear there's a good movie coming out. Yeah, there's a new restaurant. I haven't tried it yet. I hear they have a really, really good burger. And just 24 hours after that, they're grabbing what they can of their belongings and fleeing for the border. Just like that. Just like that. And this entire thing is outside of their immediate control. Our devotion to God is based on the fact that we recognize that in every single moment of my life, I need Allah. There isn't a single scintilla of a moment that I am free of need of Allah at any given moment. And the only thing you need to look at to confirm this reality is just the world around you. Just look at the world around you. There were people in seemingly secure positions. Just a moment after that, they were in completely unstable, completely insecure positions, just like that. You know, la ilaha illallah. I was mentioning that I travel often. And it's always interesting to see people during severe turbulence, right? When there's severe turbulence, even though I've actually spoken to aeronautical engineers who tell me the plane is built to endure much more turbulence than it will ever experience. And that turbulence is merely two jet streams of air going over and underneath the plane. So it's causing the plane just to buffet a little bit, just to go up and down. You know, you have nothing to be worried about. And there isn't a single recorded instance of a plane crashing due to turbulence, right? No plane has experienced turbulence, say, oh, too much turbulence. And then, like, like that, he's like, you know, my friend, an aeronautical engineer, he's telling me that doesn't actually happen, obey. That like the plane is like, it's going and so much turbulence, the wing popped off and now it's so loud. Yeah, that doesn't happen. But when we experience turbulence, this realization of our contingency, somehow, just because of, I think, the physical sensation of instability, it just hits. You just realize in that moment, I'm 35,000 feet in the sky in a piece of steel that's being piloted by a computer. Subhanallah. <laughs> you, know, you, you know, it just hits you like, right? You know, um, a teacher of mine, he said, human beings were created 
from dirt and water, but primarily dirt. And you will find most women and men arrogating themselves when they're firmly on terra firma, when they're firmly on land. But he says, at sea and in the sky, there's, there's, a, there's a kind of like a, a realization of their contingency. See, when a person is at sea and the boat is, you know, in danger of capsizing, right? And, you, and you, you're looking and you see water. You're surrounded by water on all sides. You suddenly feel small underneath the cosmos. Oh my God, anything could happen to me. And you recognize your need of Allah. Anything could happen to me. The same thing happens when you're flying. And anything can happen to me. The goal of the Muslim woman, the goal of the Muslim man is to realize that state without the boat rocking. To realize that state without the plane experiencing turbulence. That even as I'm walking down the street, anything could happen to me. Allah, I need you. I need you for security. You know, subhanAllah, my children, they asked me, they said, you know, and my wife tells me, I got to do better about this. They say, dad, we've never seen you cry. And I'm like, I cry. You just have never seen me cry, right? Doesn't mean I don't cry, I cry. And they said, dad, and the, by the way, this is just, uh, you know, the fanciful ideas of children about their parents. Dad, you don't seem like you're afraid of anything, right? I said, no, there are things that, 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 that I'm afraid of. Is it like what? I said, well, I would never want to be tortured. I would never want to be tortured. Just kill me. I don't want to, I don't want to be humiliated. I don't want to be tortured, right? So I couldn't, I couldn't see myself in that kind of situation, allowing myself to become anybody's hostage. No, we're going out right there. I'm not, don't torture me, right? I don't want to be tortured. The second thing, I fear senility. You know, to lose touch with um, the world as it really is would frighten me deeply. And my heart goes out to everybody that has experienced psychosis or so even just being in possession of my faculties, I need God. Just the fact that, you know, now, I mean, you know, even now, I don't know that my mental health is 100%. I mean, you know, you know, I could be slightly off, you know. I don't mean to offend anybody, but I have a theory. Everybody who converts to Islam is a little crazy, you know what I'm saying? I believe that <laughs> we're all a little bit crazy, yeah, right. But Alhamdulillah, you know, I'm able to I'm able to function. Who can guarantee that for me? Who can guarantee that for me? Do you know how many people that I mean I can tell you stories? Amir probably has similar stories. You probably have similar stories. People that there was a guy I grew up with. His name was Derek Villatero, athlete, charismatic, funny. I mean, 
everybody loved Derek. And Derek started smoking marijuana probably in his junior year. And he went to buy some marijuana that the young man that was selling the marijuana, he was receiving a lot of complaints from people. This marijuana, this man, this, this weed ain't even getting me high, man. So somebody told him, if you spray the marijuana with embalming fluid, this will increase its potency. And, and it won't, it, it, your customers, my friend Derek went and bought some of this marijuana that had been sprayed with embalming fluid. He smoked, experienced extreme psychosis, and he was never the same after that. External stimuli, long periods of institutionalization, just, just, just using drugs, and he probably thought this harmless. Lost his mind. Lost his mind. We would see him and just think, man, just one time? One time? Just like that. We are in need, even the things that we think very basic, like my sanity, you cannot ensure that for yourself. You are completely reliant upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? The wise person recognizes this. You know, they say, man, arafa nafsahu, arafa rabba. This is not a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, but this is a, a, an athar. You know, this is an ibarah. This is a statement, a wise statement. Whoever knows herself knows her Lord. That when you recognize that as a human being, just in your humanity, you are limited by need. You recognize that what differentiates the divine is that Allah is ghaniyun. Allah is free of need. Allah does not have any need. You have lots of need. Right? If oxygen was not present in this space now, we would all be dead. We would all as, you know, asphyxiate. We wouldn't be able to breathe. Right? Just We have all kinds of needs. To recognize that need is to recognize our dependence upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, uh, I'll say this and I'll move to uh, another point of Imam Ghazali's. He said, Dr. Sherman Jackson told me, he said, when we engage people that are atheist, we often begin with God. But of course, this is exactly what they don't accept. This is, this is the most contentious aspect of the debate. He said, if you begin with human contingency, human mortality, if you start there, something that is irrefutable, let's start there. Me, you, all of us, we're mortal. We have contingencies. We have needs. My faith in God grows out of that. Now, you pose the question to them, your recognition of your need and your contingency, what does it produce for you? Ah, either you don't recognize it or it, it, you're stuck there. 
You, you must recognize the contingency that I recognize, but I guess you say what? It's just luck. I just take my chances with luck. Hopefully I'll have what I need. And I say, no, I think I'm going to have faith. Then we seem much more alike. Right? We recognize this is a common aspect of our humanity. My faith grows out of that. Right? Changes the complexion of the debate a little bit. Right? Well, then he says, وَعَمَلْ لِنَّارِ بِقَدْرِ صَبْرِكَ عَلَيْهَا And work to avoid punishment in the next life in accordance with your ability to endure the punishment of the next life. MashaAllah, here at Tetlif, we encourage people striving for those spiritual heights. I really want all of you to be, you know, there's a famous statement of Rabi'ah al-Adawiyyah, you know, you know, the chief of, of, uh, of the saints of Islam. She said, oh God, if I worship you out of desire for heaven, then prevent me from heaven. And if I worship you out of fear of hell, then put me in hell. But only if I worship you out of love for you, then give yourself to me. This is a beautiful statement. I, I mean, I must admit, as a person that loves rhetoric, loves language, that's powerful. That's poetic. But if one of you says, why do I worship God? Because I don't want to go to hell. That's okay. That's okay. Why, why are you doing all of this? You say, well, I'm not, I'm not the most spiritual person in the world, but when I die, I want to be good, man. It's not the most spiritual answer, but it's a real answer. Right? Allah Ta'ala says, Save yourself and your families from fire. Like it's not, yeah, I mean, that statement of Rabi'ah is a very high-minded statement. But for those of us at a basic level, right, you know, subhanAllah, um, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he said, al mu'minu he said, the strong believer is better than the weak believer, and in both of them there is good. I love this hadith. Because in the same way that I find great beauty and inspiration in Rabia's statement, the brother that's just like, yo, man. I mean, I'm not even really like that religious in my like natural disposition, but I do realize that I'm going to die one day. And uh, tell me what I got to do so I can be straight on the other side. Just give me the basic rundown of what will contribute to my salvation. I, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm never going to levitate. I'm never going to walk on water or something like that. I'm probably not going to be, but when I die, I want to be straight. I find that very inspiring too, right? You know, one of the reasons, now, you know, subhanAllah, you know, uh, Ibn Atta'ilah, he's another person, special person in our tradition, one of my favorite authors to read. And he also has that 
vivid religious imagination that, you know, it's like he's able to inspire you, to transport you, to take you places. So I'm reading this book of his called At-Tanweer Fi Isqat At-Tadbir. And he says, check this out. Check this out. He says, the people, the women that were gathered with Zuleikha, they were given knives and fruit. And they started to cut their fruit. And when Sayyidina Yusuf, in all of his beauty and splendor, appeared before them, they were so taken by his beauty that they, they completely forgot that they were cutting their hands. That like his beauty, in a sense, anesthetized them. They were so, you know, captivated by his beauty that they didn't even feel the pain. It's like, oh my God, look, this is an angel. He said, what then? For someone who realizes the beauty of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He says, if Allah made his beauty manifest to the people in hell, they wouldn't even be able to feel or experience the fire of hell. He said, so the real punishment is not fire. It's just being removed from God. That's the real punishment. Because if God is near, you won't, there will be no sensation but being enraptured. And I'm like, that is very beautiful. And I even see some of you like, man, that's kind of deep. But why has God described punishment in terms of fire? Because this is something whose physical sensation we know is unbearable. If you just take an open flame, even when I was uh, gesticulating, right? I was speaking and I was using a lot of isharat, my hand just came over near this and I immediately said, right? Just to feel the fumes wafting from the top of this container, that was enough that like on a, a phenomenological level without even saying automatically, I just feel the heat. No, 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 right? I burn, like, of course, you all hear that story about people who burn themselves on the stove. I burned myself on the stove when I was young. Even now, when I get near a stove, I just can feel the caution. Make sure all of the eyes of the stove are off. You remember that, right? Burning is a sensation that People that have experienced it, they say it's like nothing else. It's like nothing else you will ever, ex if you talk to someone who is open up, welcome. If you talk to someone who can bear to speak about it because it's so traumatic, who was burned and has experienced second or third degree burns and you ask them, what is the sensation like? They will tell you all of them. It's indescribable. It's indescribable. It's indescribable. The English language does not have adequate 
words to describe what it is to burn. It's indescribable. You know, even I know people that have been shot. They say even the sensation of the slug burning in your flesh, they say that's indescribable. Just one part of your body, it's, it's so hot, right? A lot of people, you know, I think a lot of people like, especially in like uh, hip hop culture now, people have made like getting shot, there's something cool, or there's some rite of passage, it's painful. You ask them, man, what was it like to get shot? Did you think about all the street cred you were gonna get? Street cred? Hot bullets burn, right? And they're just, this is just, you know, heated pieces of uh, uh, steel. So if you think about like your skin incinerating, you can't deal with that. You don't want to deal with that. You don't want to experience that. You know, there was a, a friend of mine, and I'm going to be a, a little bit explicit here, but it's for the purpose of the doubts. He really had a problem with controlling his sexual appetite. That it was just, before he embraced Islam, it was a part of his life that was completely unrestrained. And after embracing Islam, he found great difficulty in controlling that aspect of himself. And he was trying everything. And somebody said to him, you know what you can do? Carry a lighter with you. And when you feel yourself about to make somebody uncomfortable by looking at them in an inappropriate way or speaking to them in a way that could lead to an illicit relationship, take the lighter out and put the flame underneath your hand and just think, hold it for as long as you can and feel its heat and let that remind you of the punishment of God. Just take it. Ooh, I don't want that. I don't want that. And he used to actually do, I mean, this was somebody, mashallah, this is someone that um, used to actually solicit sex workers. I mean, he had a really bad situation. He would go out and solicit um, sex workers. And he said, when he was going on into one of those areas that is sometimes colloquially known as a stroll or he would take the lighter out. No, I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want that. I can't handle that. Right. And he said, this would be enough to restrain him for a day. So now he would go home. If he went out the next day, he would do it again. No, no, no. I don't want that. And he said, it was something about the physical sensation of heat near his hand that was just a potent reminder. There is punishment for actions like this, right? That's a real thing, man. So he said, why Work for the next life according to how you work for the fire or work to avoid the fire according to your ability to endure the fire, right? So... MashaAllah, these were about five points. He said, work for your worldly life, commensurate with your stay therein. Work for your hereafter, commensurate with your permanence therein. 
Work for Allah, commensurate with your need for him. And work for the fire, commensurate with your ability to endure it. Sadaqa Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And from there, we can open the floor for questions, comments. I didn't mean to take you guys to the dark side with that story. But there is a dark side. There is a dark side. I think sometimes people forget. And we intend this as a space of healing. There are Muslims that are really struggling with real things. The other thing about this brother that would do that, he would always wear like Middle Eastern clothes, turban, robe, because he said, even in my depraved state, I know that I would not walk into one of those places dressed in, in the sunnah of the Prophet that I just, I could not do that. I could not show up trying to arrange something like that with somebody doing that dressed in that way. I just, I have at least enough respect for Islam that I just, I could not do that. So he would not wear anything else. And this is actually how the, the conversation started. I said to him, why do you always wear a turban? I said, you know, it's not wajib in our religion, right? You don't have to do that. He said, you really want to know? I wasn't ready for it. <laughs> you really want to know why I dress like this? Because I got I have certain weaknesses. This helps me. This helps me. And me being uh, intruding, you know, uh, uncultured bore, what kind of problems? What kind of problems? Ugh, what kind of problems? You really want to know? Yeah, I really want to know. He said, you know, I used to have a thing, man, with, with uh, you know, soliciting prostitutes, man. And, you know, I became Muslim and, you know, this is something that helps me to, to not do that, you know, because I just, you know, for me to, 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 to try to set something like that up, wearing a, a robe and a turban, it would just, I, I couldn't do that. Right? And then he told me also about, you know, the, the fire on his hand. You know, I just thought, I pray for him often. I just thought, subhanAllah, this is what this man is doing in an attempt to like maintain his chastity. SubhanAllah, his ifa. SubhanAllah. SubhanAllah. MashaAllah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim wa al-Asr. Inna l-insana lafi khusr. Illa al-ladina amanu wa amilu salihati wa tuwasib al-haqqi wa tuwasib al-sabr. Ameen ya Rabbil Alameen. سبحان ربك رب العزة عما يصفون وسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين Thank you for tuning in. Please consider becoming a monthly sustainer by joining 1000 Hearts of Ta'lif and committing to give $3 a day to keep this work coming to seekers, youth, and newcomers to Islam. Sign up today at www.ta'leefcollective.org forward slash donate. We hope you enjoyed the variety of sessions available and hope you benefit immensely. Allah bless you and Allah bless your loved ones.